0: Be willing to adapt to what you do and how you do it, but not why you do it.
1: Hey, what's going on? You're listening to the Live Leaderly Podcast. I'm your host, Darren Alba. Here on the show, we invite guests from all walks to share their stories about leadership, which just become stories about life. I ask that with the people in your life, please tell your story, listen to theirs, but in the meantime, we'll do it together. Here on the Live Leaderly Podcast. And joining us on the show today, lead at Mental Flow, Kyle Zamchek. Kyle, welcome to the show. How are you?
0: Hi, thanks so much for having me. I am doing spectacularly today. How are you?
1: I'm doing pretty great. Thank you for asking. We were talking a little bit before this, and I'm making this move to Austin here in a uh, couple of weeks, actually. And I found out you lived in Austin for about a decade. What's one of the first places I should go food-wise or really anything um, to go experience when I move to Austin here shortly?
0: Oh, food. That's a competitive answer that I need to come up with. So I, off the top of my head, I would, guess I would say there are two food places. One for the ambiance and because it's just so Austin, I would say Casa de Luz. But to all the listeners, maybe don't spread the word too much because I think part of what makes it so delightful is the intimacy of the space and going for a walk, uh, you know, and then heading over to Casa de Luz. So there. And then the second recommendation would have to be Hop Donnie's. It's those burgers veggie burgers what I, i'm gluten-free and vegetarian but i'm recommending this burger place and so do all the meat eaters in my life they love it too so definitely those two
1: places I, i've not heard of either of those places I, I you know go to travel to austin every now and then never never went to either of those two places so we'll have to add that to the google maps uh want to goes so thanks uh thanks for sharing kyle uh where, where are you calling in from today you you were in austin but where are you now
0: yeah, I I like to say that I left a little piece of my soul in Austin. So part of me is still there, but physically now I am in the Boston area. So back on the East Coast.
1: Okay, great. A question I like asking folks is if they could think back to childhood or when they were a teenager, do you remember what your first leadership role or first leadership memory was?
0: Yeah, this is an interesting one because there's actually three moments that really distinctively come to mind when I think about examples of Leadership as a kid, or when I was younger. So, maybe I'll do a high level on all three. The first one was when I was really a kid, maybe six, maybe five. And there was a book that my parents read to me, and it was about this bully, and the bully was being busy being a bully. And then the other, and it was an animal. And then the other animals in this story decided that they would get back at the bully and they got it all stung with bees. And I just became so upset. I couldn't believe that they would bully the bully, and I was just like, "Why didn't they go ask someone for help?" And I guess it was such a big deal that uh, we had to write into the publisher because I became really—I was just—I had the courage of my conviction that this was wrong. And my parents, the uh, thanks for their support, were like, "You are right. This this is an odd message to send." And we ended up sending a thoughtfully worded message to the publisher. And I would say, um, that was the first example, but I think really highlights a big part of uh, some of how I approach leadership in general.
1: Wow. That's a great story that um, these, these fictional characters you got so invested in as a, as a kid. You're like, that's not right. Like We shouldn't be doing that, even if he was a bully. But, and that was at six years old, you said?
0: It was. Apparently, I was inconsolable. Like I could not get over it. I was crying. I, was, I felt it really deeply.
1: And, but you said you had uh, two, two others that you, uh, you could think back to as well?
0: Yeah, I do. These ones are later in life. So, one was I was maybe about 19 or 20. It was in a summer. I was working at a community center in Newton, Massachusetts. And it was during the summers when I was at college and I was an art teacher at the time. And I remember I I went to put things in the recycling and I realized there was no recycling. So, then I went to the head of the camp and I said, You know, I didn't see a recycling in the art room. Can you tell me more? She said, oh, we don't have recycling. I thought, well, this is just wrong. I was one of the most affluent communities. Like how, how is it possible to not have this? So then I just marched right down to like the head of this whole organization, which was a large one. I knocked on the door and then I proceeded to have a whole conversation with them about what kind of precedent was this setting for the community, a whole bunch of things and just how, how could I help and can I get this initiative started and let's do this together. And I could raise funds if it's like, what are the, what are the roadblocks between getting uh, where we were to having a good recycling situation and, uh, Then I went back to my art room, didn't think anything of it. And the head of the camp came in and said, "Uh, Kyle, did you go down and talk to the head of the organization about recycling? I said, I did. And then I saw her face and I was like, is that a problem? And uh, needless to say, I went home and I told my parents, you know, I almost got fired today. And I was nervous to share that with them. And they just said, Kyle, we are so proud of you. And that was a really formative experience in what do I care about as a leader? And what did I feel supported by the people who loved me to go out and put a stand for?
1: Identifying something that you saw as a problem for both you and the community, and then uh, identifying or recommending solutions to to pave the way forward. And then you had a a third one that you, you remembered?
0: Yeah, this one I was in my very early 20s when I was, which you'll hear about later, still in my directing and doing a lot more theater arts. And I was assistant director for someone. I really respected them. And it was a more culturally sensitive show. So the show really delved into the impact of global warming and that it has on areas of the world that are the most vulnerable, both from a geographic and social perspective. So put front and center how communities and families are really undone when their cultures are so damaged by these external environmental changes. So someone who was working on this show, they kept doing a fake accent, and they were saying these extremely culturally insensitive things. So, you know, I remember thinking, okay, I really respect this director. How do I articulate this to them? And I spent time and I spent thought and I raised it as a core problem. And that just that his flippant racism was really undermining the integrity of the show that I knew that this director had worked so hard to build. And I had spent so much, you know, considerate thought to effectively articulate this to them. And then when I shared it, I was just met with nothing. Like I was met with, oh, well, I know him and that's not his intention. And she did, you know, absolutely nothing. And so it was a really painful wake up call to me at this point, very, very early in my career, um, that just because someone may signal in a slew of ways that they may care about the things I care about or that are important, uh, that they are not necessarily going to put their beliefs into actions to protect the larger group or the integrity of the community. And this really changed me. And it, it really, for me, became who will I work
1: with and what will I stand? Those are three great, very vivid examples where you witnessed something, observed something that you thought just wasn't quite right or was detrimental to you or the community and the people around you. And you you communicated that forward. Unfortunately, in that last one, it didn't lead to the actions of, of those leaders. It, it sounds like you know, maybe you've taken that with you, and when people come to youth problems in the future, that's something that you internalize and try to show empathy and an understanding for help other other people's viewpoints.
0: Definitely, I think it would both make me help me to be more empathic as a leader to understand the vulnerable position that people who um, don't feel like they have as much power in a community that I'm in, and when they take the time to voice that like how sensitive that is and how important it is to them. It also, I think, really shaped who I was willing to work with. After that, there was only one director in town that I said, oh, I'm a yes to this person because I believe in the work. So shout out to Rudy Ramirez because I adored working with Rudy.
1: Values aligned with you. So we we got to know uh, just in those three stories a a lot about you, but could you share a little more about your background and, and where you're from, Kyle?
0: Yeah, so as you know, I spent some formative time in Austin, but I'm originally from the Boston area. Uh, I like to say I also only go places that rhyme, you know, Boston or Austin. But my path has really been a somewhat unexpected one, because I think if you'd asked me when I was younger, what do you want to be when you grow up? My jobs didn't exist at the time. So early on in my career, as I mentioned, I was doing a lot of theater, but I had steady performing identity. So I had really um, gotten involved with what are the ways that we signal who we are and communicate about that to the world. And it led me to a career that I didn't know existed called executive communication coaching. So I was trained by Dr. Dennis Becker, the founder of that firm. And I ended up going out into the world and they said, hey, you're an expert on communication now. And I felt like... I had been graduated from high school for four years. How much of an expert could I be on anything? And, uh, you know, maybe college one year I'd been graduated. But I turns out when you go right into the heart of organization and they tell you all of their problems about communication, you become an expert pretty quickly. And I ended up really just knocking on doors and hustling my way into eventually I had google as an account i actually ended up going and speaking at the national security agency in washington dc to train one of their teams so i really had a wonderful opportunity from that perspective and along that journey i ended up working with a lot of software developers a lot of people who are brilliant technologists but struggle a little bit more with communicating about what they did to non-technical folks and clients that actually led me to going internal to build out a department at a software development firm, an agency. Uh, one thing led to another. I kept working at that company and I eventually became CEO. So I really learned by doing. And then in that process, at that point, I built out, you know, hundreds of products for other people. And I really thought, well, what do I care about? What this what is this intersection of communication and technology where my heart is? And what would it mean to build around that? And that's when I left jackrabbit mobile to go start my own product which ended up being in the peer counseling space and ended up growing that uh, and then ended up rolling that into another peer counseling company that i raised a million dollars for and then here i am today with this interesting assortment of skills and history that i feel extremely grateful for the opportunities that i've had along the journey
1: what what a journey you're in theater performing identity you found yourself in communications and coaching and then you found yourself in tech and software as a uh, my my final job here in the military is as a physicist and so I'm surrounded by a lot of very technical brilliant people who love talking about physics but that doesn't always translate to someone who doesn't understand physics as part of your job it sounds like you tried to help them translate some of those thoughts and those ideas to, to ways that better, uh, people could better understand them is that is that correct
0: Yeah, I think there's so many times where you have really high-performing teams internally, but specifically for the areas I was supporting a number of software engineers, it's also about that communication with the clients and that end user. And how do you effectively, you know, really to me, I saw it very similarly to running theater production i was often in that seat of director and sometimes we had a 45 person team we had actors we had performers we had technologists uh, we had the people who are going to come and watch it and i felt the same in running a tech company you know here we had designers developers project managers everyone had a different style of working had different needs i mean maybe you're familiar with the maker versus manager calendar and the different needs of that so how do you listen to the needs of all these different teams and then enable them to work together to serve that client?
1: Was that intimidating at first to, I'm assuming you didn't have like a coding or, or tech software background to step into those kind of roles and interact with those people with that expertise uh, without having the expertise yourself. Was that intimidating at first for you? That's
0: such a good question. Oh my God. It was, it was like drinking from a fire hose every day. It was terrifying and overwhelming. And I also knew that my job was to follow the threads of the problems and unearth them. And part of that was a really humbling experience because I had to every single day say, I'm going to ask, what does that mean? Or what is this? If I don't understand something, I need to name that so I can. And what was really actually, I'd say very informative about that is how many times I realized when I didn't understand something, actually about half of the room also didn't understand it. And I actually think it was through that process of needing to really humble myself that I realized how okay and actually how celebrated it should be to have that beginner mindset.
1: It's okay to not know. And, uh, you, you looked around and a lot of other people didn't know. So it was, it's okay to not know and ask questions. You found yourself at mental foe, which, uh, for those listening, is a sister company to to Leaderly here. Could you talk a little bit about Mental Flow and um, what what it is y'all do over there?
0: Yeah, so it's interesting. It's right now with Mental Flow, and I don't know by the time the listeners listen to this, it's going to be an evolution, but really about how do you get access? I think that's where my heart and soul have been sitting professionally for a while. How do you get access to mental health resources from wherever you are and from at whatever stage of personal growth and development you're at. And so whether that's working with peer counseling networks and low cost, affordable mental health resources, or micro learning and very uh, accessible content at your fingertips, that's really what the drive of what we're building is all about, is that idea of accessible an affordable is, I guess, affordable is part of that umbrella of accessible, but really um, different people have different needs and different people have different comfort levels talking about what those needs are and what does it mean to use technology to enable, you know, mental health support to get into the hands of those who need it most
1: helping people navigate, whether it's micro learning in an app or uh, other resources outside, but you're, you're trying to bridge that connect so more people can access those resources who, who really need those. Well, you've, you've had many different roles over the years. If you could go back to an earlier Kyle, is there any leadership advice that you think you could have benefited from back in the day?
0: Yeah, these are beautiful questions, by the way. I just want to name them. i say There's probably two big pieces of advice I would have. And the first is be relentlessly unafraid to fail. Because failure isn't what limits you. It's that fear of failure. And we see that same with emotions. So often, so much energy is put into resisting whatever the emotion is. What if we trusted ourselves to sit and be in that really challenging emotion? We'd move it. And then it could transmute and become something else. But that resistance, just like that fear, operates in a way that's very limiting. That would be the first. And the second would come from, there was this time when I was so overwhelmed. It was definitely when I was in the thick of managing so many different different portfolios for this company and the different clients. And I remember uh, really being stressed out about one project in particular. And somebody said to me, you know, a year from now, if you wrote this problem down and you open that up and you read it a year from now, I think you probably wouldn't care as much about it. And so I would say it wasn't so much about not caring. I think caring is a really beautiful thing to do, but that it's okay. This will change. The problems that you face will change and this moment will pass. And so in that moment of discomfort, having trust that future you, You know, what does future Kyle want to tell me, uh, I think is a valuable piece of advice that I really benefited when somebody mentioned that to me. And there's also this great blog. I don't know if you're familiar with Farnham Street. Have you ever read it? No, no. Oh, it's a great blog. Recommend it for all different entrepreneurs alike and anyone who's curious thinker and tinkerer. Um, But Shane Parrish says something great, which is what looks like success is often just patience. So, that might be how I would round out what it is that I'd share with my younger self. Because when I set out to build some of, especially the platform Listen Lee, which became Pure Collective, I had no idea if this was going to be the thing. But I felt like it was the first step into an area that I really cared about. And it's amazing how that compounds over time. And you start to realize that you actually know a lot about a space and you know all the movers and shakers in that space and it's sometimes just taking a bunch of little steps that allow you to arrive there.
1: What looks like success is often just patience. Um, the the other thing you mentioned was be unafraid to fail, be relentless with that, be unafraid to fail. I know you did a lot of, um, or you do a lot of communication coaching, so people are afraid to speak up. Some people are afraid to let their ideas be known. Are there, uh, what advice do you have for people who are afraid to speak up and let, you know, let people know what they're thinking?
0: Yeah, one, I, I like to remind people that fear of speaking is always tied with fear of death when you ask people about their fears. So normalizing it, I think is a really important first part. And then the second, I really believe in getting to know our fear. Because sometimes asking, you know, what what are you afraid would happen if you spoke up? and to really wrap our head around that, um, rather than it being some abstract fear and an emotion that can kind of override our ability to take action, we can get to know that fear, really talk to it, and then ask it if it can give us a little bit of space. So I'd say it's an active process of allowing ourselves to find our voice and trust our voice to speak. And if we have fear blocking that, much like the resistance, you know we can stuff it down we can try to avoid that fear or we can just really look at it and be with it. And then usually it's, you know, like something, you know, I mentioned, I'm not a huge meat eater, but I hear that when you cook meat, you know, eventually it kind of like falls off the bone. It tenderizes mm-hmm. and falls off the bone. I think fear, I think resistance all function in a similar way as if you can be with it tender, not ten, 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 is that the t- word tender Tenderize. T- tenderize, <laughs> tenderize yeah Yeah. <laughs> then, um, you know, you find that things get a lot softer, a lot easier, and so it's it's a process. And I would say, you're not alone in it.
1: I'll, I'll shift over to a, another question: Is uh, if you could think about some of your best leaders, some of your best mentors over the years, um, you know, throughout your career, what are the kinds of things that they did that you really admired, and you've tried to incorporate them into uh, into, into Kyle?
0: Yeah, I would say three different areas that I really admire in leaders. Who I've had the opportunity to collaborate with or who existed long before I was ever born uh, would be one interpersonal awareness two authenticity and three curiosity. So I'll give a little bit about each one, but when it comes to interpersonal awareness, there's a fantastic entrepreneur and, you know, if you haven't read about him yet, you will in a few years, his name is Michael Goldberg and, you know, Uh, he's he's meanwhile been a researcher in cancer and doing phenomenally brilliant work but sometimes if somebody asks him you know what is it that you do he'll say i order chocolates he says you take care of people give them something that makes them feel truly appreciated and it makes a huge difference so this brilliant you know professor from harvard medical school now doing this biotech really at his heart understands it's about the people and ordering chocolates is an actionable step of having that interpersonal awareness to thank people, to acknowledge, to make them feel appreciated. So that's the interpersonal awareness that I really value. The second with authenticity, this one was huge for me. I think this is also illuminated by those early stories that I told you from my childhood and that piece about what is your authentic voice and how do you follow it? And so the question that I would pose with this. And the thing that I've really seen and appreciated is this idea of what are your values and for people to stay committed to those. So be willing to adapt to what you do and how you do it, but not why you do it. And I think the leaders who have that why so in their heart, um, it becomes so much a part of their actions that really no matter what area it is that they touch, that why and their core values doesn't change. Um, and that permeates the culture that they build in their teams. It permeates like the end user. It, it, it just so many areas of that. So that would be authenticity. And I guess the third, the curiosity piece, there's a great John Cleese uh, quote, which is, the trouble is that most people want to be right. The very best people, however want to know if they're right. This really resonates for me because being a leader for me is about being a model for others and asking if you're right and leading with curiosity, that to me is an impactful leader.
1: 3 3 great traits and characteristics the first one, what do you do for a living? I, I buy chocolate. I give people chocolate. I, I know what I want to be when I grow up now. I don't want to give people chocolate and be, be <laughs> thankful and be appreciative of people and understand the, understand those relationships. Um, well, can anyone learn to do these things? Can anyone learn interpersonal awareness, authenticity, curiosity, being unafraid to fail? All those things. Can anyone learn to lead? Can anyone learn to do those things?
0: Yeah, Another great question. And I think, you know, if the best way to improve your ability to think is to spend time thinking, then the best way to improve your leadership is to lead. So to me, what that means is, one, it's give yourself opportunities to lead. There's a great entrepreneur who I worked with, and it was so funny in his early young career days, he was kind of a very low on the totem pole software engineer. And he said, I really want to learn how to manage people. And so he set out and he hired a personal assistant. Something happened at the company. He's like, oh, let me get my personal assistant to do this. And all of his bosses, superiors, coworkers were like, why do you have a personal assistant? I don't have one. And I'm making three times as much as you. And he said, I I wanted a chance to practice. And sure enough, he ended up building out his own company. And you know that was successful. So I think that that's a great example of, the best way to improve your leadership is to lead into practice. And the second piece that I'll say with it is the idea that leadership is contextual. This is something I've spent a lot of time with when we look at how emotional intelligence is contextual. We can sometimes think of these things as like one core set of skills or competencies when really it is very fluid and it is very dynamic. So what it means to be an effective leader of a SaaS company is gonna be very different than what it means to be a great leader in a family or in a community. You know, it's all about the situation at hand and what's needed to meet that situation most impactfully and thoughtfully. And also depending on what is your leading, you know, a huge undervalued part of being a leader, people think, oh, what it is that you do for a job. So often that job is just putting out a ton of fires in every direction all the time. And then the ability to emotionally stay grounded through that process. So I I had this journal once and it was with me during, I'd say, some of the more chaotic times of my professional life when so much was happening. And it, it was this Bob Dylan quote, which was, everything passes, everything changes, just do what you think you should do. Because I think in these really dynamic environments where what it means to be a leader is so contextual. I hear so frequently leaders say, I don't know what to do. Like there's all this. And I say, you know, who can you glean information from? What, you know, other mentors can you learn from? But at the end of the day, you're sitting there with the most information that somebody is going to have about that situation. So do what you think you should do and learning to trust that and be in integrity with that.
1: Improve leading by by leading, just just doing it, and then leadership is contextual. Uh, it, it changes with conditions. So do what you need to do in in whatever those conditions happen to be. Uh, we're we're close to wrapping up here shortly, Kyle. But I, I did want to turn it back over to you if you had any other thoughts about leadership, advice about leadership uh, that you wanted to add to the podcast before we close out.
0: Well, one, I want to thank you for having me on today. You asked great questions that really gave me a chance to reflect and look at the different things that. Go into leadership uh, that, you know, we don't always sit there and really allow ourselves to think, you know, how did I arrive here and what were the things that were most important to me on the journey? And I guess the one thing I would leave with is I think in a world that has a lot of productivity focus and a lot of focus on optimization, it can be hard to also, or there's just not always space to sit with. Some of the very real human, gentle sides of all of this. Uh, you know, I, I guess I'll I'll leave you with a quote by Mary Ann Radmacher. And courage doesn't always roar. Sometimes courage is a quiet voice. At the end of the day, saying, "I will try again tomorrow."
1: I love that. Uh, maybe it's I'll, I'll try again tomorrow. But fantastic. Uh, we'll now get to wisdom of leadership of life. Thank you so much, Kyle, for coming on the show and, and sharing your thoughts and your story.
0: Thank you so much for having me. I look forward to continue getting to know you and watch the Live Leaderly podcast progress and listen to all the future episodes.
1: All right. Our guest today, Kyle Zamchak. And for all those out there listening, this has been the Live Leaderly podcast.